My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. In the beginning, God created this big, beautiful universe, a universe that was designed to display his glory, his holiness, his righteousness. He put, especially as, as special creatures in the middle of this universe, he put his human image bearers, Adam and Eve. They were designed to, in ways that no other part of creation was designed to do, designed to reflect his image to the rest of the creation and to each other. 
Adam and Eve and the rest of us, like our grandfathers and mothers, Adam and Eve, have failed in that calling. We've turned in on ourselves. We've rebelled against God. And now we don't reflect him the way we should anymore. God comes up with a plan way back in Genesis 3 to fix this problem, though. And that includes promising to Eve that someday one of her offspring would rescue the whole world. He calls Abram a few chapters later and says, Abram, you're it. You're, you, you and your offspring are going to rescue the whole world. I'm going to use you to bring blessing to the whole world. Abram is called to be the image bearer, the kingdom of priests that Adam and Eve were called to be and couldn't be. But Abraham and his family, like us, failed in that calling as well. God gave them a king. He gave them Torah. He gave them scripture. He gave them his presence in the temple. He gave them covenants. And yet they failed him. And that brought us last week to the absolute nadir, the absolute bottom of the story, the lowest point that God's people get to, which was exile, because they rebelled against God and worshiped false gods, did not reflect who he was to the creation around them. God sent them into exile in Babylon. 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and his army shows up, blows up the temple, takes a lot of God's people to Babylon, where they establish a Jewish quarter there. That was what we were reading about when we read Psalm 88 last week, which is completely hopeless. A psalm which has absolutely no redeeming value in it just by itself. Why? That's the question at the end of the psalm. Why are you doing this, God? And that's where we stopped last week. And that's the connection with the turning point that we're hitting this week, which is the good news of Jesus. So we've spent a lot of weeks on the Old Testament stuff, and now this week, uh, and and you guys have noticed this too, I've included Jesus in every single one of these sermons because it's not really a Christian sermon if you don't connect it to Jesus. If this wasn't a series of sermons, if it was just a Bible study like we do for the new members class, those of you who've been through the new members class, I'll just start at the beginning and not, like, and hold Jesus back. And so that sounds horrible, doesn't it? Like, I'll keep him sort of back behind the scenes until we get to the first Christmas morning when he's born and then use him to explain everything that we've read so far. But that's where we're at. We're at this Jesus. And especially the link here, there's a couple of links here. One of the big ones is Psalm 22, verse 1, which I talked about last Sunday in the sermon, which we read at the beginning of the service this morning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That question, Jesus' question on the cross, is the same question that the psalmist in exile in Psalm 88 asks. Why, God? Why have you done this? That's our connection. And the answer is, the answer is, is that the Messiah had to suffer. The Messiah had to suffer. Here's the second link. In the gospel reading, which we just read a minute ago, Jesus asked this question, verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Messiah, the one anointed king, the one who's going to replace David, remember we talked about several weeks ago, was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Wasn't it necessary that, that God's son had to suffer for the kingdom to be brought about? And then the next line is, this also links us to it. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's kind of what the sermon series is about. You begin with Moses and all the prophets and think about where is Jesus in this story? How does this story tell the story of Jesus? Not just the story of Jesus, but the story of restored humanity and our salvation and the renewed call to once again be the image bearers that God called us to be in the garden, but we failed to be. And how now, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the resurrected Jesus, he's equipping us 
to be the God reflectors that he designed us to be. This is the story that Jesus is telling the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. The heart of that story, though, is the Messiah had to suffer. Now, I had a, 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 a New Testament professor in a PhD seminar who asked the group, where in the Old Testament does it say the Messiah had to suffer? And the answer is, there's really not, a, you can't find a proof text. There's not like one verse, like, you know, looking Ezekiel and it says, oh, the Messiah must suffer. There it is. It's actually just baked in to the whole story. It's a part of the rhythm of Old Testament expectations. It's a part of the way they saw themselves and their hope for redemption. And I'm gonna, we're gonna look at two texts this morning and we are not gonna dig down deep into these texts, although they are very much worthwhile, worth digging down deep into. What we're gonna do, I'm just gonna show you the arc of these texts and how they tell the story about how if things were gonna get fixed, God's chosen one had to suffer, all right? So let's look at these real quick. Psalm 22, that's our psalm for this morning. Um, and just flip back there in the bulletin or if you're looking in your Bible, Psalm 22, and we're not gonna look at all of this. I'm just gonna point out to you the arc of the story of Psalm, the, the, the story that Psalm 22 is telling. Psalm 22 starts off really bad. Whoever it is, the, 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 the psalmist here is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, now you guys know this, those of you who, who are, are familiar with the New Testament. You know that this is what Jesus says from the cross. As his father turns his back on him, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the question is, is Jesus like, oh, I remember this Bible verse from when I was a kid, Psalm 22.1. Maybe I'll quote that now. Probably not. Jesus, though, has spent his life filling his brain up and his heart up with Psalm 22. And in the moment when God the Father turns his back on his own son, he has all of that built into him. He sees in that moment that that is his destiny, that he has reached the crisis point that he was sent to earth for, and he can't help but pull Psalm 22 up to his lips in that moment. Why Psalm 22, though? Well, see, God forsook him, and so he says, my God, my God, why? But that's not the complete story of Psalm 22. The story of Psalm 22 comes to us in three parts, real broadly here. The first part is starting with verse one and going down to roughly verse you know, 18-ish. It's bad news. God has forsaken him. He trusted in him. But like his fathers, God delivered them, but not me. I'm a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by all mankind and despised by people. Everybody mocks me. They all say, trust in the Lord. Let, let the Lord deliver you since you're, since you're so buddy-buddy with God. Why don't you just trust in him and he'll deliver you? They're being sarcastic with me. Many bulls are encompassing me. They open wide their mouths. I'm poured out like water. My heart's like wax. Dogs encompass me. They've pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments. This is all bad news. God has abandoned the psalmist here, the chosen one. God's abandoned him. But second part of the psalm that you need to know about, there is a turning point in verse 21. Look at verse 21. It's this continued prayer. Save me from the mouth of the lion. But now, check it out. There's a turning point. It's not a prayer to do something, but it's, it turns into a prayer acknowledging that something has been done. It starts off with save me and it ends with you have saved me. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. That's the second turning point. That, that, that's, the second part. that's the turning point in the psalm. The Messiah must suffer, but there's going to be a turning point where that suffering turns. He's rescued by the Father, and what that turns into is, and that's the third half of the psalm. Again, we're not gonna dig into this, but let me just point out to you verses 27 and 28. 
All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. So it's, 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 it's an odd, it's, it's, it's almost a blur of a psalm. It starts off with God's chosen one being abandoned. It ends with all the nations bowing down to God as the one true king. And in the middle, there's this turning point where this suffering one carries the weight of this suffering, cries out to the Lord for help. The Lord delivers him, and that deliverance turns into salvation for all the nations. Right? That's a story that's built into the Old Testament, is that God will save the nations. The promises that he made to Abraham, that he's going to bring blessing to the whole world, will happen, but it will happen somehow through the suffering of this chosen, abandoned one. All right, flip over to the Old Testament reading. Very, very similar story, only the ark is backwards here. It begins with kingdom. It begins with kingship, Isaiah 52, uh, verses 7 through uh, 12, where God's people are in exile. The people who are back home in Jerusalem, looking out over the, the city walls, see a messenger running over the hills to deliver a message. This messenger runs into the city and announces, our God is king again. Your God reigns, Isaiah 52, 7. That's gospel. What does that mean? It means all the bad gods, all the Nebuchadnezzars of the world, all of the Caesars of the world, all the Hitlers of the world, all the bad presidents, all the bad CEOs, all the bad cultural leaders are no longer in charge, and now our God reigns. It's like the end of Psalm 22, right? Well, how does this happen? How does God reign? How does he bear his holy arm in verse 10? The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. How has he done that? How is he, you guys know, that's, that's gym language. It's, it works the same in Hebrew as it does in English. To flex. How has he bared his holy arm in front of the nations? Well, go down to verse, uh, verse one of chapter 53. It's about uh, nine or 10 lines down. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, then it tells the story of this one who grew up before him like a young plant. No beauty. He was esteemed. He wasn't esteemed. Verse four, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So this is the same story that Psalm 22 tells, only it's in reverse. It starts off with the kingdom and then explains how the kingdom got here. God is going to rule and reign over all things. How's he gonna do it? How's he gonna flex? He's gonna flex to this one who's no flex at all. This suffering servant who was so beat up and so mistreated that we all looked at him and thought, God does not like that guy. Then at some point we realize, wait a minute, he's bruised for my sins. He's being punished for my iniquities. He's being beat up because I need to be fixed. So this story, see, you guys understand, this is the story that's built in to the story of the Bible, that the Messiah, the chosen one, must suffer. Now, are there alternatives? Could God have done it differently? When Adam and Eve sinned, could God have come with like this huge massive army and fixed the problem? I, I, I don't know. I guess so. He could do whatever he wants. But somehow he's chosen to fix the problems of the entire world through the suffering of himself, through the suffering of his own son. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus brings about the kingdom, but he does it through his own self-sacrifice. He does it through being wounded for us. Now, if, if you're honest with yourself, and whether you're, those of you who are Christians, those of you who are not Christians, you all fit into this boat. There's something deep within your heart that taps into this. There's something deep within your heart that, 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 that reaches out and grabs onto this. We tell ourselves stories about people who've committed great acts of self-sacrifice. And we might not envy those people, but there's something about those stories. It's a story of a firefighter 
who goes into a burning building to rescue a baby risk their own life, maybe even suffer severe injury. And there's something about us that says, yes, that is deeply valuable. That's way more valuable than like my team winning the game this afternoon, which is fun. It's a great story. But there's something about that, that deep self-sacrifice, which my heart links with. We, we, you'll, you'll hear a story sometime about a spouse who's been married to, to, to their spouse for forever, you know, and then the, the, the one spouse gets Alzheimer's. And the other spouse, the healthy spouse, spends their last remaining retirement years not playing golf or traveling in Europe, but caring deeply for this spouse who doesn't even remember them. And when that happens, you say, oh, that's so, that's powerful. That's, there's something beautiful, deeply beautiful and wonderful about that. What is, it, what, what is it that causes us to do that, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian? I'll tell you what it is. There's something deep down inside each one of us that knows self-sacrifice is our only hope. Somebody needs to sacrifice themselves for us. There's something that craves, we all crave there being somebody that when I get Alzheimer's, there will be somebody who loves me enough to give themselves up to care for me. That if I was trapped in a burning building, I would wanna know that one of you loved me so much that you would consider my life worth your life. It's hard to find people like that. Okay? It's almost impossible. And yet, this is the story that's built into the heart of the Bible is that God is that person. God's the person who sacrifices. God is not the Wizard of Oz. He's not pulling cords and pressing buttons and causing lightning here and somebody wins the lottery here and the Cardinals finish in last place here and that sort of thing. God throws himself into the middle of the story as a character, as one of us, as a normal dude, not as like this world-famous entertainer. Not as like the most brilliant CEO ever. Not as the king of a thousand armies, but as a construction worker so that he can die and sacrifice for us. That's the story that's built right into the heart of the Bible. Okay, why? I'll give you three reasons why, and there's probably more. These are just three that came to the top of my head as I was studying this week. One is, uh, you know, why would, he, why would God choose to suffer like this? Why would he choose to suffer? One is, he wants to define divine strength in terms of self-sacrifice. So it's tempting to think of God as like the Wizard of Oz sometimes, like this all-powerful being who presses all the buttons and you know, makes the tidal waves happen and things like that. And I'm not saying that that's not true, but the way that God chooses to, divine, to define himself to us is differently. He defines himself in terms of weakness. He, he chooses to become an infant, who has to be breastfed to survive, who has to have his poopy butt wiped in order to be clean. This is what God subjects himself to for us. That's not, you can call that weakness. It is, of course, weakness. Being a little baby, is, you can't get around that it's weak. But that is divine power, the divine power of self-sacrifice, the divine power of divine weakness. God defines strength in those terms. And what that means for us is, is that from now on, you and I, those of you who are Christians, if you're not a Christian, hopefully you're on your way here. But for those of us who are Christians, we can no longer talk of strength in terms of the world's definition of strength. It has to be in terms of Jesus' definition of strength. Strength through weakness. The kind of strength that the, that the Apostle Paul embodies in 2 Corinthians. Remember this text we read last week where he says, I am the apostle. I'm the apostle that you should believe. And follow Corinthian church because I have all the credentials of a great apostle. I've been beaten up 14 times, been shipwrecked. I had 
Five times people tried to stone me. Nobody likes me. I'm a horrible public speaker. That's the proof that he has, and he caps it off with, because when I am weak, then I'm strong. I find my strength in my weakness, which highlights Jesus' strength through me. So divine, divine, divine strength has to be defined in terms of self-sacrifice. Second, Jesus is, Jesus self-sacrifices because that's his way of saving the world without destroying it. It's his one way of saving the world without destroying it. So what are his alternatives? You guys have seen houses before like this, houses that maybe once were beautiful. So I, I, I lived in Alton for a period of time. And for those of you who are from Alton, you'll be aware of the McPike Mansion. And it's kind of sat there at the top of Albee Street for a long time. And it's been abandoned for a long time. And there's always people who are buying it and selling it, buying it and selling it. And they're going to fix it. It's this big, beautiful house that the mayor of Alton owned back in the 19th century. It's completely falling down. And people will buy it and try and bolster it. Because there's this sense that it's worth saving. But almost everybody in Alton knows that at some point it's just going to have to be torn down. Because the cost to save it is too much. It's just going to have to be bulldozed. And it's sad. But sometimes things are so bad, that's all you can do. It's just bulldoze it and start over. Sometimes your lucky t-shirt has to be thrown away. There's nothing you can do to save it. God could do that. The world could be corrupted by sin in Genesis 3, and God could say, this is too much. Let's just blow it up and maybe start over again. But he doesn't do that. He could do that. It's the difference between a violent criminal thrusting their knife into somebody in order to kill them, and a surgeon taking their scalpel and opening somebody up in order to save them. And I know, I, I realize I, I, I tinkered around with that illustration last week. You'll excuse me if I borrow it again for this week. They're both knife cuts. They both are drawing blood. They both cause pain and suffering to the person who's experiencing them. But one is done for the purpose of destruction, to, to get rid of whoever it is that's being stabbed. And the other is done for the purpose of saving. Now, what if there was a surgeon and the surgeon realized that in this world there are tons of diseases, there's tons of cancers, tons of sicknesses, and the surgeon thought, it's not a true story by the way, the surgeon knew that I could, by some sort of deep magic, combine all the cancers, all the sicknesses, all the diseases of the world into the body of my son. And I could perform surgery on my son and in one fell swoop, take out all the diseases and all the sicknesses in the world. What if there was a surgeon who could do that? Would you call that surgeon cruel for cutting his son open? Or would you say that's the most self-sacrificial loving thing any family has ever done in the history of the universe? This is why the Messiah must suffer. is because the only way to get rid of the evil and the brokenness and the sin of the world, deep as it is, is to either blow the whole thing up or to do some sort of deep radical surgery on himself. And he chooses option two, self-sacrificial love. Third is this, to leave us a pattern for living lives of real biblical strength. Not strength in the world's terms, but strength in God's terms. He leaves us a pattern for this. Now, look over at 1 Peter 2. This is a, we're gonna just fly over of this text as well. I'm gonna give you a handful of applications and then we'll be done. I kept you here a long time last Sunday. I remember that. Thank you for coming back, those of you who were here last Sunday. I'm gonna try and be a little bit easier on you this Sunday. I'll try to, uh, to pay you back for it. First Peter 2, and again, there's so much to look at in this text, but this is just a brief flyover. But I want you to see what Peter does. He says this, he starts off with kingdom, the Lord ruling and reigning, and he says, this is you guys. 
you are a part of the rule and reign of God. In verse nine, you are a chosen race, a royal, it's a kingdom, priesthood. You are working for God. You are now Christians. You are the image bearers that God wanted Adam and Eve to be. God is repairing you so that you can reflect him. So pause, I'm gonna get 30 seconds to do this. When, 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 When the Bible talks about being good, this is not about like, oh, you need to not have fun or you need to do all these good deeds so that you can help people out. You need to do all these good deeds so that God will be happy with you. It's not what the Bible is doing. When the Bible talks about holiness, it means this. God designed us from the very beginning to reflect him and all he's doing is trying to create us, recreate us and shape us so that we once again look like him, that we once again love outside of ourselves, that we once again are holy, that we once again value others more than ourselves. That's what's going on here. And verse nine in 1 Peter 2 says, that's who you are. God has created you to be this way. You now rule over the whole world. You are a combination. Christians, you are a combination. Kings and queens and priests and priestesses of the whole world. How do you do this? Answer, you submit to bad rulers. Verse 13 and following. You submit to bad bosses. Verses 18 and following. You don't submit to bad boss. You don't submit to your boss. You don't do what the boss tells you to do because he or she is a good boss. You do it. It's even better, Peter says, when they're a bad boss and you submit to them because you are a God reflector. What's he saying? He's saying that the kingdom is exercised through our weakness. This works for the Christian church too. As with Jesus, now so with those of us who've been baptized into Jesus. When we are weak, The kingdom of God is strong. And that's why at the end of this text, starting in verse 21, Peter says, this is who you are. You are the Isaiah 53 guy now that you've been plugged into Jesus. Now that Jesus has died and risen from the dead, this is you. You've been called to this, he says in verse 20, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found. And there's this echo, I'm not gonna read it again. Down through verse 25, this this barrage of echoes from Isaiah 53. The main point is this though, if you want verse nine, if you want the kingdom, if you wanna be a royal race and a chosen priesthood, if you wanna be a God reflector, the path through that is the path of the cross. Baptized into Jesus Christ, now we suffer for each other. If you wanted to go on, if we wanted to keep on reading in 1 Peter 3, we could see he says, submitting to a bad spouse. Not, not, just, not, not just honoring and loving and submitting to our good spouses, but especially when our spouses are bad, that's a way to be a God reflect. That's a way to exercise kingdom power. Now, some people, that's not, this is not kingdom power. Like obeying a bad boss, obeying bad government, obeying a bad spouse, that's not power, that's weakness. Okay, yeah, but in the world's terms, that's right. But in, in the economy of Jesus, it's flipped around. It's weakness, yes, but it is power. It's the power of the kingdom. Now, there's way more to say that. There's way more to unpack about what that would look like in your day-to-day life. I'm not calling anybody in here to, to cooperate in somebody else's sin against you. That's not what I'm talking about. It's not what Peter's talking about. But what he is saying, though, is that submission, suffering, because there are bad people in the world, is how God exercises authority. It's what Jesus did. The Caesars and the Herods of the world killed him, and that's actually how the kingdom of God got started. All right, now, applications, and then we'll be done. And I've got a list of them here. And um, I'm going to look, those of you who, uh, you know who you are, you are good at giving me the nonverbal clues that I've preached too long. You know who you are. We've discussed this. I'm counting on you to give me those clues uh, here in a second. I'm going to go through these. I'll see how many of I get, to, get through. The first one, though, I'm going to have to say, trust Jesus. Any attempts for me and you to justify ourselves, 
are not gonna work because all of our attempts to justify ourselves will be done on the world's terms of strength. Job success. That's, it, it is, what, is what gets me up in the morning where I can look in the mirror and say, Aaron Miller, you have value. Is that career success? But, 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 and you guys know this too. I'm not saying that career success is bad. I'm saying as a means of self-justification, as a means of finding my worth, that's the way it works in the world. But that's just weakness in God's economy. It can never, ever have enough success to justify my own existence. Relationship success, financial success, academic success, being good-looking, whatever it is. I've, I've talked about these before. All these are, it's not bad to be good-looking, to be funny, to have money, to have a good job, to have a great relationships. Those are all wonderful, great things that God has given you and you should enjoy. But if you say to yourself, that's how I have value, then you're justifying yourself. Go to the cross. Go to the way which you would never, you would never go to the execution of a criminal. Look at that executed criminal and say, that's my meaning and purpose. But that's what I'm asking you to do this morning. That's what the Bible's asking you to do this morning. The Messiah had to suffer for the kingdom to come about. Okay, that's the main one. All right, here's a couple of uh, ones. And some of these are top down and some of these are bottom up and you'll know when you hear them. Uh, a lot of you have failed. All of us have failed to some extent. But a lot of you have had significant failures in your life. You failed in marriage. Lots of you were on not your first marriage, but some of you are single because you've been divorced. Some of you have failed in business. A lot of us have failed in friendship. Some of you have failed in parenting. And now you feel disqualified from whatever because I botched it. I screwed this thing up. I botched this marriage or I botched this business opportunity or I botched this chance to parent these kids. Jesus was disqualified for you. Jesus did the big botching for you so that now you have value. You have not been disqualified. You have not, I'm not saying that there's no such thing as botching stuff up, but that does not take your worth away at all because Jesus experienced that on your behalf. He experienced that on your behalf. It's related to this. And, um, this is important for me to say, so just pay attention for a second. Because of this, we at St. James should be transparent about, and I'm talking to church members now, we should be transparent about our brokenness and sinfulness. We need to be open. You know, there's, there's points where you don't tell everything you know about yourself, but we need to be open about how we are broken people. We are people who've botched up marriages. We are people who've botched up businesses. We are people who've botched up friendships and business opportunities and relationships with our parents. We are the people who've done that. Because I'll be honest with you, it's a very important thing for me to say. Your goodness, your self-righteousness oppresses me. It makes me sick that you have such wonderful marriages, that you are such wonderful people, that you always do and say the right thing. You know what liberates me? is when I know that you need the exact same grace of God in your marriages and in your businesses and in your friendships and in your parenting that I do. And as long as we walk around here like we got it all together, like I do everything right, all my family's super happy, they think I'm the best husband and dad in the world, I'm super successful at everything I do, we're living a lie that tells everybody else you're not good enough. But if I can from this pulpit be transparent about the, the ways that I have deeply screwed up my own life, what that tells you guys is, is that the answer is not living a great life or being a great husband or a great pastor 
or a great businessman or a great father or a great friend, that the key to life is Jesus' sacrifice for us in his resurrection. We call that grace. We talk about grace a lot in churches like ours, but then we live like grace isn't real, like we have it all together. And what we, you and I need to do is we need to commit. Now, Shannon was talking about community groups. This is a great way to do this, is to, I'm gonna be transparent and open about my own weakness, weaknesses and brokennesses, not because I'm not like gonna go on some sort of guilt trip where people will pat me and say, they're there. Whenever I tell you guys about things that I've screwed up, frequently people will walk through that door and be like, you're doing okay. But that's not the point. I'm not looking for an attaboy or I'm not fishing for like a compliment. What I'm doing is telling you, I need Jesus. Like all the ways that the world can be successful, I've tried those ways. I've never ever reached the top in any sort of those categories. In fact, I've frequently fallen below them. What has rescued me though is that God has been very radically good to me in Jesus Christ. If I can live that life in front of you, if you can live that life in front of me, St. James would be an amazing place. We would actually start to heal. Those of you who are too ashamed of the things that you've done, the things you've experienced, and the things that you've thought and said would start to heal and know Jesus took all that. I have deep value regardless. This goes for doubts too. St. James needs to be a place where people can have doubts. Every single one of you in here has doubts about Christianity. When we act like, oh, we're the people who know everything. When I act like, well, I'm a pastor, I know everything. What I do is I tell you that intellectual certainty is the path to success. And it's not. We need to be a place where we can share our struggles with who God has called us to be. All right. Um, along the lines of uh, uh, strength through weakness in the church, we need to use Jesus' definition of strength to define our mission here. What does it mean to be successful at the mission that God has called St. James to be on? Some of you uh, listened uh, along with me to uh, the Mars Hill podcast that Christianity Today put out uh, a year ago about a um, big church plant turned into a mega church in Seattle uh, called Mars Hill, and their pastor, who was the pastor there. The church starts off, it's, it, and it's a good church. It's not, there, there'd be stuff that we disagreed with them about theologically, but it's a solid theological church. It starts to get big. It starts to get strong in worldly terms. And the next thing you know, the personality of the pastor the dynamics of its ministries, the power of its internet footprint become the thing that make it a powerful church. And it fails eventually. The church falls apart and all of its satellite campuses fall apart because that's not the way God works. You don't judge a church by that sort of definition of strength. You judge it by weakness. Are we people who are transparent about our brokenness? Are we people who are willing to suffer along with Glenn Carvin? That's what strength is. Are we people who are able to, that, that not able, that's the wrong word. Are we people who have been graced by God to live a cross-shaped life in our community? That's the strength of Jesus. All right, a couple more things here. Uh, let me pick out some things. Um, uh, senior citizens, culture tells you that your value is over because you no longer produce. Now, if you produced enough when you were working, now you've got enough to retire on and go somewhere and enjoy that. But your value is no longer, you know this, no, no, nobody makes music for you. Nobody makes TV shows or movies about you. Nobody makes clothing lines designed for you. You just go away. That is the way the world judges strength. It's not the way God judges strength. Those of you who are seniors, now is the time. Now is the time to start serving the Lord in the midst of your weakness. Serve the Lord out of that. That's the most powerful thing you can do. Related to that, uh, don't hide your sickness. Don't hide your sickness. 
It's this big thing, especially for those of you who are the older generation, you get sick, I don't tell anybody. I keep that to myself. Why would you hide your own brokenness and sickness from the rest of us? If the most powerful event in the history of the universe is the death of God, then certainly your impending death can be a place out of which his glory works. Don't cut me off from that. I need, I, I've been commanded by my Savior to weep with those who weep. D don't deny me that opportunity to weep with you, to walk with you through your mortality. That's, I, I will never know Jesus more powerfully than, we are, than when we are experiencing dying in Jesus. Don't, don't be sick in silence. Don't hush it up because that's what the greatest generation did. We didn't tell anybody about our weaknesses. That's what I'm arguing against. That's the world's definition of strength. God loved the greatest generation. But that definition of strength is not biblical. Um, uh, let me do, uh, let's do uh, just one more and then we'll be done. It's kind of, a uh, sermon's kind of petering out slowly. I should like, I should like have a, a poem or a song to quote to you like for slam bang finish. I don't though. Uh, men, we are to be strong and lead our families. That's, that's, that's considered to be toxic now to say those sorts of things. But the reason why it's considered to be toxic is because if you say that we should be strong and lead our families and you use the world's definition of strength, it is toxic. Like, I will be in charge. These people will do what I say. I make the final call here. That's the way the world thinks of power. That's the CEO model. But if we think of leading and being strong in terms of Jesus, in terms of like what Paul says in Ephesians, husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If that's our definition of strength, is that we can be strong enough to sacrifice ourselves for our wives and our kids. We will make ourselves the slaves of our family. That's gospel stuff. And Angela can tell you, I'm not good at this. I'm preaching it myself right now. That's gospel-centered power. The power of being a servant to your, to, to your wife and to your kids. Man, we need to like not be abandoning this mission of being strong leaders because it's too toxic, but being embra be embracing a cross-shaped vision of what it means to be a strong leader because that's what the crucifixion of Jesus does. It's strength through death. It's strength through weakness. It's strength through self-sacrifice. That's what God, so let me, let me just end with a little bit of gospel, then we'll go to communion. That's what God has offered you guys, his willingness to sacrifice himself for us, to save us, to rescue us. That's what he's called us to look like. He's called us to look like him, to be God reflectors, to be image bearers. And now as we hear his word and now as we come forward for communion, those of you who are believers, let's fill up on that. Let's go to the cross. Let's go to the crucified Jesus for our source of real, genuine biblical strength. All right, let me pray for us. God, thank you for loving us and for being a good God and just continue to uh, be, be reshaping and reordering, reordering our minds, Father, so that we see your strength, your strength through the weakness of your crucified son, Jesus, as the true definition. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.